KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, February 26th. Recall efforts begin soon against the San Diego City Council president. We'll have more next, but first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County Supervisor Jim Desmond is asking Governor Gavin Newsom to allow fans back to Petco Park for the upcoming baseball season in April. Desmond argues other cities and teams have changed how people can gather at stadiums and have made masks mandatory. Supervisor Nathan Fletcher said he would also support allowing fans back, provided that the COVID-19 case numbers support the move. A federal judge has denied a request from 25 San Diego gyms and fitness centers to reopen indoor operations. The gyms sued the state amid the COVID-19 restrictions, arguing that public health officials were arbitrarily allowing some businesses to remain open and that the closures were a violation of free speech. The judge rejected that argument. A proposal to close the Brooks Street Swimming Center in Oceanside was defeated at Wednesday's city council meeting in a four-to-one vote. Two Oceanside council members have proposed closing the community pool that serves many low-income families to pay for the new El Corazon Aquatic Center. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. A signature gathering campaign to recall City Council President Jen Campbell of District 2 will kick off on Saturday. Campbell's district includes Pacific Beach, Mission Beach, and Point Loma. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen has more on the issues motivating the recall campaign and how Campbell is responding. All right, everybody, 635 it is. Let's uh, get started here. Bridger Lankford is a volunteer with the Recall Jen Campbell campaign. He's welcoming about 90 people to a virtual organizing meeting. We want community-based policymaking at, at the city. We want our voices to be heard. We want to, to govern our own city and not be governed by these special interests. Recall campaigns are rarely successful, and the pandemic will make this one all the more difficult. But the group is motivated by what they see as Campbell's failure to represent their interests. We live in a coastal community that has been taken over by short-term vacation rentals. Point Loma resident Mandy Havlick says she joined the campaign when Campbell announced her proposal to legalize and regulate short-term home rentals popularized by Airbnb. The proposal was approved by the council Tuesday and is expected to significantly reduce the overall number of short-term rental listings in San Diego. Most of the city's elected officials called it a good compromise, but Havlick says it was crafted by special interests, not the community. And they need to ban them. Uh, that's uh, I'm not willing to compromise on that because, again, you're saying that this 
industry, it's going to be put on the backs of people who are in need of housing. And that's going to impact our community little by little when the families can't, you know, the school populace goes down because there's no families in the neighborhood. Campbell says she's been discussing this thorny issue with constituents since before she was elected to her seat in 2018, and that community input played a big role in her proposal. So it was a lot of collaboration, a lot of compromise, a lot of working together over at least a three-year period and included the community all the way along. Campbell adds a special recall election would cost taxpayers up to $2 million, a high price, she says, when she's up for re-election next year. Uh, The people behind this are people who disagree with me on certain issues or politically, and uh, what they need to do is get themselves together for the next campaign and vote for whomever they want. Campbell's stance on short-term rentals is not the only issue driving the recall effort. Maybe it's unconscious racism, but it is racism, and people need to call it out for what it is. Tasha Williamson is an activist who lives outside District 2 in southeast San Diego. She was outraged when a slim majority of Campbell's colleagues chose her to become city council president. Councilmember Monica Montgomery Stepp also sought the post and said she would use it to advance racial equity, especially in policing. Williamson says Campbell is holding back police reforms. Jen Campbell has showed us in every instance that she is against our right uh, to have a police department that is just and moral, that provides non-biased policing. Campbell says she's spent a lifetime advocating for equality and has evolved on policing issues. For example, she initially backed the police's right to use the carotid restraint, or sleeper hold. But after last year's racial justice protests, she agreed it should be banned. I did not realize that the police departments were using it incorrectly and they were choking people. So I opened my eyes and I learned new information and I changed my mind. But Williamson says the community's problems with Campbell run deeper than her stance on a few specific issues. She has actually brought people together that would not normally be together to recall her because she has refused to listen to her constituents all over this city and she has been disrespectful to constituents of color. To force a vote on the recall, the campaign needs to gather more than 14,000 valid signatures from District 2 voters by June 2nd. Campaigns like this often rely on paid signature gatherers, but the recall effort doesn't have major financial backers, so most of the work will have to come from volunteers. And that reporting from KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Over the next few weeks, hundreds of thousands of more people in San Diego County will become eligible to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. That's the good news, but vaccine supply has been a concern. Here's KPBS's John Carroll with more. It's a question without an easy answer, and it's not new, says Scripps Chief Medical Officer for Acute Care, Dr. Ghazala Sharif. We had the same thing happen when the tiers were open up to age 65 and up. We had just at Scripps alone over 200,000 patients that qualified age 65 and up, and initially we only had 10,000 vaccines. 
That same situation could very well happen again in the coming weeks, and it's likely to be worse. By the middle of March, hundreds of thousands more people in the county will become eligible to get the vaccine. Governor Newsom says as of March 1st, teachers, law enforcement, food service, and agricultural workers will become eligible. Then, on March 15th, another enormous group of people, those aged 16 to 64 with certain pre-existing health conditions, will be able to get a shot. Dr. Sharif says the county, along with health care systems, are doing their best to distribute and administer vaccines. But she says they could do much better if only they knew how much they were going to get. We will find out today what we are getting uh, on Monday or Tuesday. So we can plan as much as we like for next week. But if the vaccine doesn't come in, you know, we, we just don't know what else to do. There is promising news when it comes to supply. Pfizer says it will be able to deliver 13 million doses per week across the country within the coming weeks. And Moderna says it will be able to provide 40 million doses per month by April. But Dr. Sharif says once people with underlying conditions become eligible next month, the floodgates are likely to open and doctors will be put in the difficult position of deciding whose underlying conditions will make them eligible and whose won't. Still, on KPBS Midday Edition Thursday, Assistant Medical Director of Family Health Centers, Dr. Christian Ramers, said there is some hopeful news, especially when it comes to making sure vaccines are given in an equitable manner. There's a federal program that is going to ship vaccines directly to community health centers. We haven't seen a dose arrive yet, but we're encouraged by the fact that those will be coming again soon. Plus, it appears the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will get FDA approval within the next few days. Good news, not so good news, just part of what makes this era of COVID so tumultuous. And that reporting from KPBS's John Carroll. The San Diego Police Department is instituting new rules on how it will police future protests. KPBS reporter Max Rivlin Nadler tells us this comes at a time when civilian oversight of the agency is changing. New rules by the San Diego Police Department seek to better manage protests by laying out a chain of command and determining when officers can use munitions. The new rules are the subject of a hearing in front of the Commission on Police Practices, which is meant to provide civilian oversight of the police board. But this current board will soon be dissolved and replaced by a new, more powerful board since voters passed Measure B this fall. Ariana Federico is an organizer with Mid-City Can, which pushed for that measure. We need to ensure that there is funding so that we're able to pay staff and so that these commissioners have all the tools to really bring accountability and transparency. Federico says it will be up to the community that elects the new board members to decide its priorities on issues like police policies regarding protests. And that was KPBS's Max Rivlin-Nadler. The L.A. City Council voted on Wednesday to give frontline retail workers at supermarkets and drugstores an extra $5 an hour in what's come to be known as hero pay. It's the latest in a series of pandemic raises being considered across Southern California. But stores are fighting back. KCRW's Matt Gillum reports. The move by the city council came a day after the County Board of Supervisors gave the green light to hero pay in unincorporated parts of L.A. County. While the county's measure goes into effect Friday, L.A. city leaders will take a final vote on theirs March 3rd. Along with supermarket and drugstore employees, workers at retailers like Target and Walmart would also get a raise because many big-box stores dedicate a portion of their sales floor to groceries and medical remedies. The extra wages would last for four months, according to the measure. 
The California Grocers Association has filed federal lawsuits claiming the measures are unconstitutional. Not long after Long Beach passed the first local hero pay ordinance, the parent company of Ralph's announced it was closing two stores in the city in response. And that was KCRW's Matt Gillum. Coming up, a fact check on California's plans to reform single-family zoning in some of its major cities. That story's next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Plans to reform single-family zoning are moving forward in some major cities across California, but not without controversy and misinformation. Cap Radio's PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols spoke with anchor Mike Haggerty to explain how these plans work in this week's Can You Handle the Truth segment. Chris, first off, what is single-family zoning and what changes do cities want to make? Well, single-family zoning is a neighborhood model that's common across California. It allows only one main housing unit per lot, and several cities are looking to change that. Last month, Sacramento became the first in California to support plans for more housing options in those neighborhoods, such as duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. These are often called missing middle housing options. The city of Berkeley voted to do the same thing this week, and San Jose and San Francisco are considering similar reforms. What do supporters have to say about these plans? They say they add more options to ease California's severe housing shortage. State lawmakers have introduced bills at the Capitol to accomplish this statewide, but they've all failed after community opposition. And advocates also say these changes will help break down the legacy of exclusionary zoning in some of the wealthiest and whitest neighborhoods across California. These are areas where racially restrictive covenants were used in the first half of the 20th century to keep out people of color. You mentioned there's been community opposition. What do opponents have to say? Well, they're worried that higher density homes, along with added traffic and parking issues, could change the character of their single-family neighborhoods. Some also reject the idea that these changes will help with California's affordable housing shortage. They point out that there's no requirement in the plans for new housing options to be affordable. Maggie Coulter of Sacramento's Elmhurst Neighborhood Association says districts like Midtown and Downtown work better for higher density housing and that many enjoy the calm and quiet of single-family areas like Elmhurst. People want that choice, and we and we should be able to have that choice in Sacramento. Density can be increased elsewhere. There's also been some confusion and misinformation attached to these proposals. Can you tell us some examples? I think that comes with the language that's used. You'll often hear these proposals described as eliminating or abolishing single-family zoning, and some opponents then twist that into the false claim 
that cities are trying to ban this type of housing, which no one is proposing, developers would still be able to build new single-family homes. Here is Sacramento's long-range planning manager, Matt Hurdle. This key strategy would simply allow a greater array of housing types, more housing options, neighborhood scale, missing middle housing options uh, throughout a city where they were once allowed. Last week, the conservative website Breitbart falsely claimed the city of Berkeley might end single family housing and the ability of families to live in a home where only their family resides. Those are major distortions and just plain wrong. That was Cap Radio's PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols speaking with anchor Mike Haggerty. You can find more on these fact checks at politifact.com slash California. And for our art segment today, the famous singer Billie Holiday died at the age of 44 in 1959, and she leaves behind a legacy of great songs rendered in her uniquely evocative vocal style. But the new Hulu film, The U.S. vs. Billie Holiday, wants to remind us of the harassment she was subjected to by law enforcement. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando has this review. The U.S. versus Billie Holiday is worth seeing for two reasons. First and foremost, Andrew Day's stunning performance and gorgeous singing. Black body swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. And two, shedding light on the FBI's harassment of Holiday because it perceived her use of the song Strange Fruit as provocative. Pardon me for asking, but why is that song so important to us? Hoover says it's un-American. You've heard those lyrics. They provoke people in the wrong way. This film arrives alongside MLK, FBI, and Judas and the Black Messiah. All three level criticism at how the government targeted people like Holiday, Martin Luther King Jr., and Fred Hampton. These films serve up an outraged trilogy about racism and abuse of power. But as a work of art, the U.S. versus Billie Holiday falls short. Director Lee Daniels uses his film to make points, but he doesn't really give us a fully fleshed-out portrait of Holiday. She's there to serve his purpose rather than to live and breathe as a person. He shows us the political importance of Strange Fruit, but I wish he could have given us a more intimate perspective on how she found the song and how it came to be so important to her. This is a better biopic than the Diana Ross vehicle Lady Sings the Blues from 1972, but I do suggest supplementing it with the recent documentary, Billy. Beth Accomando, KPBS News. And that's it for the podcast today. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Father, to suck. Father, son, to rot. Father, trees. To drop Here is a strange And bitter
KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.